0: So in almost every New Testament passage that talks about discernment, if you didn't know we're talking about discernment today, but in every New Testament passage that talks about discernment, you encounter this word called test, this this command telling us that we ought to be testing things. And the idea behind test is that we would be people who can give our validation to things that are good and right. Right, that, that's the whole point of testing, is we're determining if something is genuine. right? So, can, but, uh, so the idea is, can you validate something as good and appropriate? Can you agree that certain words and actions are authorized words or actions? Meaning, words that the people who speak them or actions that the people who do them have the authority to enact in the situation that they enact them. Can you observe details about a thing or about a situation and agree that that thing is what it claims to be? Genuine. Can you validate it? Right, so uh, so give an illustration of this. On Facebook, I received a message from the account of a friend of mine, uh, and that friend said to me, hey, send me money. I'm in a bind, and I need some help. And so I have some questions, right? I ask, okay, well, what's going on? And they say, here, could you send it to this Venmo account, right? This is the Venmo account I wanna send it to. I have now entered into a situation where I have to test, right, I have to kind of weigh some things out. The first thing I have to test, should I give them the money, right? But before that, I have something else that I need to test. And that is, is this really the person that they claim to be, right? because this is unusual behavior for that person. They have my phone number, why in the world didn't they call me or text me? Right, so so I asked them some questions to validate and it turns out it was someone impersonating that, that person. They were not authorized to ask me for money because they were not authorized to adopt that person's identity. So the next thing that I test is how long can I keep this person on the hook to think that I'm going along with them, but like keep subtly correcting them throughout the, yeah, right, that's the next, that's the next thing I figure out. Uh, another illustration of this, when I speak up here, there ought to be many of you testing the things that I'm saying, so weighing it against scripture, Telling me, is it right? Is it good? Is it appropriate, the things that I'm saying? Or am I authorized to speak the words that I'm speaking? Because when I'm in this role, teaching and preaching the things that God says, I do not have the authority to teach what is untrue. I do not have the authority to teach what is contrary to God's word. I do not have the authority to give you frameworks for a worldview that would lead you astray from biblical conclusions. I don't have the authority to do any of that. So you, and in particular our elders, are called to test the things that I say to validate whether or not I am authorized to speak the words that I speak up here. And if I'm not, If you discover in your testing that I am not authorized to speak what I speak, address it with me. Bring it to my attention. Show me the test that you apply to what I said so that we can deal with these things. Right, so so this is the idea behind testing. So we are in a series called discernment and discernment is all about us becoming better testers and better validators because Christian maturity and the skill of being able to test well are tightly linked together right so last week we looked at discernment we defined it discernment is this discernment tests and determines what is right for a given situation so discernment requires knowledge it requires wisdom but it also requires what we talked about last week it also requires love you cannot discern well without love. In fact, love is the foundation of our discernment. And just to clarify what I mean, I'm talking about love for God and love for others, a self-sacrificial kind of love that is concerned for what God is up to in the world and the things that he wants, right? So, so let's say it like this. This is what we said last week. Followers of Jesus must love with discernment so that we can love what God loves in the way that he loves right so that's that's kind of what we got at last week that sets the stage for where we're going to go today so today we are asking the question how do I discern God's will so when I set out when I knew that was the question we were going to be dealing with when I set out to answer that question this is what I thought was going to happen I thought that I was gonna give you like a top five list. Like do this and then do this and then do this. I was gonna give you like a rubric and if you could just run every decision through that rubric, you would be able to figure out what is God's will. And it was gonna be super practical and uh, it was gonna give you a high degree of certainty about the things that you ought to do and not do. But then I read the Bible and, uh, and I found something quite different. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have a list for you. I will have a list for you a little bit later. But the list, the list is not the main thing. Okay? Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Church, would you pray with me, please? God, I pray that you would give us your mind this morning, that you would renew us Lord, we have been pressed into the mold that our circumstances have created. We have been pressed into the mold that ways of thinking in the world have created. We have been pressed into a mold that you have not created. Lord, and you give us an invitation to be transformed, to have new minds. Or that we will have the ability to test well, to discern the things that you want. And so, Lord, this morning, more than anything else, I confess our collective need for you, Holy Spirit, to make us new people. Lord, make us new people. Do Take uh, the words that are spoken, take your living and active word and impress it upon our hearts that it might actually shape us into the kind of people that you desire us to be. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So talking about the will of God is kind of a theological challenge, and there's a reason for that. The reason is that because... When the Bible talks about the will of God, it is really talking about two different categories or two different things. So before we get too far, we have to kind of identify what these categories are talking about because we're asking the question, how do I discern God's will? We need to figure out what is the question that we're actually asking. So, so two biblical categories for God's will. The first category for God's will. When the Bible is talking about God's will, it's talking about God's moral will. The things that God wants, the things that he has revealed in Scripture, the things that he has spoken clearly about. This is what God approves of. Things that he commands, but also not only things that he commands, things that he clearly just calls good in Scripture. right? There Also, these are words or thinking or uh, patterns of behavior that he calls not good. Right? This is uh, thinking that he calls righteous or unrighteous. There are actions that he approves of and says, carry these out, and also actions that he detests and says, don't do these things. Right? That's what we're talking about when we talk about God's moral will, God's wants. So that's the first category. The second category that the Bible uses when it talks about God's will is God's sovereign will, God's plans, right? because he is the one who sits above the arc of history. And by the way, like, nothing that happens takes him by surprise. Like, it's not like he's, like, somehow caught off guard by things that we do or things that take place. It's not like somehow he wasn't anticipating that, that we weren't going to do something, and so now he has to kind of change the way that he was going to do things because of what we did. It's not like he's, like, just sitting here reacting to all of the different things that we are kind of coming up with as humans and trying to figure us out. Like, if it took place, it took place because he either allowed it or ordained it or permitted it, right? Like it all happened within the span of his sovereignty. So let's take the murder of Jesus, for example. Does God want murder? Thank you. I was so worried. <laughs> I was like, somebody was going, yes! No, okay. He does not give his approval to it. No, he hates it, in fact. Unauthorized taking of human life is despised by him. He gives a whole command about it in the the list of commands that he calls his ten commands, right? These are the most important, and a whole command is devoted just to that idea. Matthew 26, 39. Jesus Praying about what was about to happen to him, said, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is saying to his Father, God, I have wants. I don't want to be murdered. I don't want to experience your wrath poured out on sin. I don't want to have nails driven into my wrists. But he's also saying, I recognize you have a plan here. And I acknowledge that your plan comes before my wants." Right, so that's kind of what he's saying. He's looking at these two different categories of wants and desire and also this category of the, the overall plan that God has. And you know what? God, in his sovereign plan, ordained that Jesus would be unjustly murdered. God does not want murder, God does not approve murder, but God in his plan saw fit to utilize murder as the means by which Jesus' sacrifice would be accomplished so that we could be set free from the power of sin. right? For forgiveness and freedom and reconciliation to people everywhere. So while God does not give the approval of his moral will to terrible things that happen, He is powerful enough, and this is really good news for us, by the way. He is powerful enough to utilize things that he does not want to happen in his sovereign plan to bring about things that he does want. Okay, so those are the two categories. So here, we have two biblical categories. We have God's moral will, his wants, and God's sovereign will, his plans. When we talk about discerning God's will... What are we talking about? I want to just clarify, we're talking about the first category. When we talk about us and the things that we are called to discern, we're talking about discerning his wants. We're talking about discerning the things that he calls good and holy and righteous and pure. We're talking about understanding the things that lead to destruction and avoiding those things. We are not talking about discerning his sovereignty or discerning kind of the plan that he has laid out because we're not fortune tellers, right? Like we are not diviners, right? We do not see the future. It is not our job to know what are the exact events that are going to take place. What we are being called to do is to discern God's wants, the things that he calls good. So so when Paul in Romans 12 talks about discerning God's will, he's calling on us to understand what God wants, what he desires, what he calls us to do and to not do, right? So, So when we ask the question, how do I discern God's will? The question that we really are asking is, how do I test for what God wants? And be very careful That when you hear that question, you're not saying, how do I test for the the exact outcome that ought to take place after this? You're asking the question, how do I test for what God wants? What he calls good, what he calls wise and appropriate. That's the question that we're asking. How do I test for what God wants? Okay, verse 1, Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So there's a false impression about the Christian life that says, Jesus has forgiven me, He has saved me, I believe it. And so now it doesn't matter how I live, I get the promise of heaven right? Holiness is optional because all that matters is that I believe. As long as I believe, that's the most important thing. So holiness is optional to me. So just let me clarify here before we set out to anything else. If you believe that holiness is optional if you believe that it doesn't matter how you live, if you believe that you get heaven but that your life still belongs to you, you have believed a false gospel. That is a false gospel. Let me tell you why. Because the true gospel is too beautiful to not respond to. It's too beautiful to not make a demand on your life after you've been given something with generosity to respond in gratefulness in return and say, okay, my life is not my own. Right, that's what chapters 1 to 11 of the book of Romans are really about. Right, So, so like, let's just, uh, I'm going to walk us through kind of conceptually the idea that, that, that Paul works with through chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. He starts out, this is leading up to chapter 12, which is where we are right now. He starts out basically building up this idea that we, all of us, were wretches given over to the ways of this world, betraying our conscience, going against nature, rebelling against God, using religion as a tool to build up our own pride and sense of achievement and one-upsmanship over other people. And so what we discover very quickly in the book of Romans is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even the best good people among us like the kindest, the most generous people among us, they cannot, we cannot escape the reality that we are selfish, that we would rather be the gods of our own lives than submit to and obey the one true God. So no matter how nice or how kind I am, my intention to live life my own way is sin. It is actually one of the most egregious kind of sins. My pride, then, is revealed as rebellion in believing that I know better what is good for me than God does. And the wages of sin is death. Death. Right? That's, that, I mean, Romans is, is kind of driving home this point. We are broken, we are sinful, we are rebellious, and the wages of our sin is death. No matter who I am, there is no amount of my attempting to be a good person that's somehow going to prove to God that I deserve heaven instead of his judgment. There's not one thing I can do to prove that. Good deeds... Do not save people who worship themselves. So, okay, so if we are left to our own devices, Paul essentially helps us make this point. We are hopeless and dead, right? Left to ourselves. If all we have is the tools that we bring to the table, we are hopeless and dead. But... God loved us too much to leave us to the death that we freely chose. So while we were still wretches and still enemies of God, rebelling in our own ways, God sent his son to die for us, the righteous and perfect in the place of the ungodly and the corrupt, so that we could find new life with God. So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will not have to face judgment for your own sin because he will absorb it for you and you will receive in return life from him right so you have sin and he takes your sin you deserve death he dies in your place you deserve hell and you get a promise of a new creation you have corruption and he gives you the rights of his perfection you were an enemy of God and he calls you friend okay That's like Romans 1 through 11, in a nutshell. I mean, there's a lot in there, but that is the nutshell, Romans 1 through 11. So when Paul gets to Romans 12, he is pleading. Verse 1, he says, I appeal to you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's saying to them, I'm asking you to grasp the wonder of all that's been done for you. Right? Do you actually believe that you needed saving? Do you actually believe that you were hopeless? Do you actually believe that you had built your life around a false God and around a false system of religion? Do you actually believe that your own way of life is void and empty? And do you actually believe that Christ has come as a gift from your Father in heaven to set you free from every piece of it? He says, I am pleading with you. I appeal to you, therefore... Now that you grasp these mercies, now that you understand just how deep they go, don't live for yourself any longer. But make your body a living sacrifice. When he says body, just imagine, replace body with whole self. All of you. Make all of you a living sacrifice. Surrender all that you are to him. Right, church, so get this. Believing his mercies should increasingly push us towards surrender. Believing his mercies should increasingly push us towards surrender. This is an ever-increasing acknowledgement. My whole being exists as an offering to him. This doesn't mean that you're not going to sin anymore. This doesn't mean that you won't struggle anymore. This doesn't mean that your flesh is not going to fight against you to try to take back control of your life. But it does mean that increasingly I die to ownership of my rights over my words and over my job and over my money and over my time and over my walks in my neighborhood, and over my conversations with my coworkers. I die to my rights over my attitude towards my boss, and my rights towards my relationships, and my rights over my parenting, and my rights over my, par- par- my marriage, because I die to my rights over all of it, and all of it belongs to him. He has rights to all of it now. I don't exist for my own reputation, I don't exist for my own self-protection. I don't exist for my own comfort. I exist to be an offering to him. Absolutely surrendered to his purposes because he has so mercifully extended, me, extended to me blessing and favor when what I actually deserved was the opposite. So when we grasp, number one, like his utter power over all things, that he is indeed the one who sits above the ark of history, that he has control over everything that he created, uh, that he is the most significant being in all the universe. When we grasp that, and then at the same time grasp that this God is merciful to people who rebel against him, the only right response is our surrender to him. Paul says that that, so, so we haven't even gotten to his will yet, right? That comes later. But Paul starts there because he says that that is the basis of being able to discern his will. Right? The basis of it starts with our surrenders. To say it a different way, only a surrendered will can discern God's will. Only a surrendered will can discern God's will. So the implication is, if you insist on life going your way, and God just kind of coming along to help you out as you make your way, you are starting from a place that has shaky footing, right? You will not be able to discern what he wants if it's still going to go according to your way, and God's just going to come and help you out, right? Because at this point, you're surrendered to your own agenda, but right, the true starting place is that your life is now meant to go God's way and increasingly we surrender to it. And so do you know what God is doing now in my life? Like me, the person who's sitting up here talking to you, what he's doing in me as I walk through this, he's putting his finger on things and saying, "Oh, you see that? That's not surrendered." Oh, you know when you do that thing, that's for self-preservation. Right? That's not surrender. And then he's inviting me. Right? You know that I'm good. You know that I'm trustworthy. Surrender. Give it up. That thing that you're holding on to. So it is an increasing daily, hour by hour kind of thing that he is calling us into. So how is it carried out? That's surrender. How is it carried out? Verse 2, Romans 12. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So here is how surrender displays itself practically. Currently, you have a mind that has been pressed into a mold by the world that you live in. So like, when we think about our decisions and determining what is right, we make like hundreds if not thousands of decisions every single day, right? And we do not think about the vast majority of those decisions, right? We've learned to make those decisions without thinking about them, right? There are like a handful of the thousands of decisions that we make that we actually have to stop and think, okay, what do I do with this? Do I go this way or this way? But the majority of the decisions are just kind of made by knee-jerk reaction at this point, Which means that for all of the other decisions, like not not the kind of big ones that we have to think about, but the ones that we don't think about, we're really kind of just relying on whatever mold has been pressing us into making those decisions by reflex. Right? So when he's saying, do not be conformed to this world, what he's saying is those hosts of decisions, they have been trained into you by something that is not righteous. Now that doesn't mean that all of those decisions are going to be unrighteous, but you need to kind of break free of the conforming of the world and the work that it has done on your soul. So the problem is not just that we don't know what to do when we face those kind of really big, hard, unclear decisions. The problem is also that we think we know what to do with all of the other decisions. Right? And so what we need is not the ability to know what God wants just in the hard decisions. We need a reliance on understanding what he wants in every decision. Right? We need to be transformed. We need a renewed mind that is taken out of the mold of the world and being reshaped by Scripture. So here's the thing. You can't change yourself. Your brain, like you have neural pathways, there are physical realities in your brain that have created circumstances by which even when you want to change, the physicality of your your physical body is so shaped in such a way that your actions are going to kind of follow through and just do what's been shaped in your mind already, right? You cannot change yourself. You cannot rewire your own neural pathways. And so notice that Paul doesn't say to you, transform. He says to you, be transformed. Right? You're not the one that does the transforming. You're not the one that does the renewing. You're not the one that does the renovating. It's the Holy Spirit working in you. Your job is to give him the space to do his job. Okay, so how? Because, and that's really what we're talking about. When Paul is calling them to surrender, he's talking about give God the space that he needs to work to actually transform you. So how do I surrender? I just want to encapsulate for us the, kind of the, the basics of what the Bible is talking about. When, when God says, be transformed, when God says, create space for me to work, this is what he's saying. How do I surrender? prayerfully submit to the power of God's word employed by the Holy Spirit like your life depends on it. Right? Prayerfully submit to the power of God's word employed by the Holy Spirit like your life depends on it. So I could just tell you, well, the way you renew your mind, you know God's word. right? Just know God's word but it's not just simply about knowing God's word because the Bible is not primarily a textbook. It is not primarily a presentation to us of a set of rules or a set of facts. It is a dynamic story about a holy God and his interaction with unholy people, which means that it is not a static container of information. God gave it to you that he might meet you through it and change you by it. Right, so to come to God like, and lay yourself bare and confess, I have a tendency to think I understand. Lord, now as I read your word, I surrender what I think I understand to you and ask you to renew my mind. Right, so I long to see us become a people who come to God's word regularly, but come to God's word by pleading with him in prayer. And i, I like, Yes, it is good that you read the Bible. And if you hear me this morning saying, oh, don't just like, don't just read the Bible. Read the Bible, right? Like be there, right? But as you read, ah, gosh, I would love it if your heart was in a place where you were consistently pleading with him in prayer. God, I am so pressed into the mold of this world. God, I cannot change myself. Holy Spirit, I need your dynamic, authoritative, living, and active word to do a work of new life inside of me, to confront me, to change my assumptions, to transform me, and renew my mind. That's what I need. So, the more we engage in relationship with God like that, you know what that does? It just creates all sorts of space in your life for him to do the work that he wants to do. Imagine if you pled with God like that over your life every day, right? Because what you have is not only the action of you saying, I'm opening up space for you to work, but you're actually calling on the God of the universe to do the work that he promises he will always bring to completion. So the more we engage in that, the more freedom we give him to write our story of renewal, to transform us into the image of Jesus. So it goes on in verse 2 of Romans, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Right, so you need a renewed mind, and then when you get, uh, as you get the renewed mind, you are increasingly able to, to test and discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So as you surrender and as you are transformed, Paul says that what you are going to do is you are actually going to grow in your skill to be able to test what God wants. Right, the more that God changes you and shapes you, the more that you increase in this skill. So some examples of this. As you let him do his work, you gain the skill to know when your boss tells you to do something immoral, that what you need to do is stand your ground, right? You gain the skill to understand when it is the right time to leave the party, right? You gain the spiritual insight to grasp the kind of boundaries that you ought to put into certain relationships, you gain the awareness to know the best times to speak, the word of encouragement that he wants you to speak. You gain the skill to see the best time to offer a prayer for that friend or for that coworker. Right, that's, that's what it is to grow in this skill of discernment. But also, like we talked about last week, like the decisions that we wrestle with the most, they are not the black or white decisions. They are the decisions that exist in the gray area. So what that also means is that we gain skills to better test those gray area decisions like what school should I go to or which job should I take or should I rent my home or should I buy my home or who should I marry, right? Like so, so while God's word might give us some basic instruction, by and large, like if you, if you look through the Bible to tell you who to marry, like it's just not gonna do that. So what we have to do is consider how the various options on the table give us the opportunity to pursue the things that God does desire with freedom and joy as we pursue those things. Okay, so now we get to come to the list, all right? So so what? So working from this premise that only a surrendered will can discern God's will— Right? If we're not starting there, we might as well just throw the list away. Right? The, the list doesn't matter. We need to start at this place of surrender. Only a surrendered will can discern God's will. How do I test for what God wants? How do I test for what God wants? Okay, so I'm just going to give you a series of questions to ask. Those questions can be extremely helpful in helping you sort out the different realities that exist and the vast array of options that might sit in front of you. Okay, so the first question. The first question is quite simple. Does it contradict God's word? Right? If it contradicts God's word, then you have your answer. About as clear as you could possibly get it. Right? Don't do the thing. Don't say the thing. Right? If it contradicts God's word, don't do it. Right? So, so that's the first one. The second question is this. This is like a bigger question picture question kind of along the same lines. The second question is, can God get his way in my life with this? Meaning, it requires you to have an understanding of what God is up to in your life, the kind of things that he wants to do through your life, Right, but you're asking questions and you're weighing out, how much does this option or this opportunity give God the, the full permission that he needs to do whatever he wants to do through my life? Right. The third question, what has mature godly counsel shown me? Right, it is beneficial to have a multitude of counselors, a multitude of godly counselors. I'm not just talking about any kind of counselor. You can get advice from just about anybody today. Right? But it is beneficial to have people who you know who are invested in God's word, who themselves are surrendered to what God wants right, to seek out their perspective on your situation. And this is worth saying, too, like, as people in the body of Christ, we do not make decisions in such a way that would just leave us divorced from the influence of the body of Christ on those decisions, right? Like, our our brothers and sisters are impacted by the decisions that we make, right? And and they have valuable things. They have valuable input. At the very least, we should be reliant or, or looking to their perspective if we hold them in high esteem and high regard. So what has mature godly counsel shown me? Number four, what open or closed doors are there? right, so this is, as you look at the options in front of you, as God is showing you, you know, these are the kinds of things that help me get my way in your life, and then you're looking at the way the options are laid out, there are going to be some that have, like, doors open for miles, right, and you just, so, That seems to be the way to go because if those doors are open and then sometimes God will close a door, meaning he will create a situation or prevent something from happening when it seemed like you should go there and that helps you to know, okay, that's not the thing that God wants. If he's prevented me from walking through that door, I'm not gonna fight him to break through that door. I'm gonna go a different direction. And then number five, um, has the Spirit given me clear direction. This asterisk right next to it or under it is very important because God does not work like this all the time. right? God does not speak clear words to the Holy Spirit all the time. Sometimes, so, so what do I mean by this? Sometimes God may give a word of knowledge or a prophetic word from a brother or sister and that may be the Holy Spirit's way of giving you clear direction. But the word by itself is not enough. This is what I mean. You have to test that word by the other tools that God has given you. Because that person may have given you a word, but that word, it could have just come from within them, right? Or it could have come from some other spirit. Those are both realities that the New Testament acknowledges. And so I see like number five, I didn't want to take out number five because I do believe it plays a role. I see number five as God's way of saying to us full speed ahead with a decision that's already been tested in those other ways, right? Okay, so, so that's our rubric. That's uh, the, it's meant to help you, right? But the, the second question is also very important here. The second so what? how do I know whether I'm really surrendered? So we are prone to confirmation bias, meaning we see what we want to see naturally without testing it at all, right? Without uh, applying God's format to it. So, So like there are many good and useful tools to help us test right to help us discern to help us validate and and yes we use our faculties to discern we use all the resources that God has given to us to try to determine and we use yes time uh, wise counsel and we ask God to be constantly conforming our minds we we spend time in prayer we seek awareness of scripture we look for the Holy Spirit's direction but if you start the process without a surrendered heart right, just open-handed to God, saying, uh, your will be done here, right? The tests do not matter. If you don't start with surrender, the tests do not matter. Now, it's good to still want to apply the tests, but here's the thing. You can make this decision or that decision, but if you're not surrendered, you know what you will do with the tests, you will use the test as a means of justifying you getting your own way, right? Because you could take those five questions, and if you have a heart that's not surrendered, you can say yes or no, yes or no, yes or no to any of them, right? To make them fit the thing that you actually just want to do. Right, so, so the surrender part is significant. So what does it look like to be surrendered? Well, that means that the glory of God is paramount to you, that the foundation of all of my comfort is my peace with God, that I see all of life as an extension of his purposes being carried out in the world. And so I, I put this question here not with the intent to give you an answer today, But to say to you, like this is one of the things that we're going to be talking about next week. Because discernment also requires us discerning ourselves. Discerning the extent to which we are surrendered. Discerning the motives of our own hearts. And so so just stay tuned for that for next week. But to end this morning, this is what I want to do. We're going to do something a little unusual. We're actually going to take this passage that we read this morning. We're going to read it backwards right we're going to read it backwards and see if we get a, a fuller grasp of what paul is trying to say here so let's read the passage backwards this is what it says you will be able to discern what is the will of god what is good and acceptable and perfect by testing right, so that's that's a great promise that's a great thing to look forward to hey you know what you are going to have the skill you will be able to do this you will be able to know what it is that God wants the good things and the acceptable things and yes even the perfect things by testing so be transformed by the renewal of your mind and do not be conformed to this world Your spiritual worship is to present the holy and acceptable living sacrifice of your entire self to God. So, by God's mercies, I appeal to you do this. Church, would you pray with me, please? Got to believe that. Um, there are people in this room who long to do the things that you want to do. I don't just believe that; I know it. But I, I, I have seen people who are seeing significant change come about in their own lives, Lord. Seeing you do works of uh, freshness and of renewal inside of them, Lord. I know that there are people here who are surrendered to the things that you want. But I, I pray for all of us that you would have us approaching you with open hands to, to indeed put your finger on the thing that you're saying, hey, that's still not surrendered to me. Lord, that you would reveal it, that you would um, show us your goodness and your power and your mercy that we might fully trust you to handle the thing that we are afraid to surrender to you. And God, we thank you for how good you've been to us in Jesus. As we celebrate communion this morning, would you well up our hearts with wonder at the mercy of God extended to sinful human beings? Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.